listening to the Verse podcast. How are you doing, James? I'm very good. Thank you all very, very much for coming on a warm evening. Uh, and yeah, thank you very much for having me. And we're up against the England game this evening. Um, so I wanted to open the conversation with a question of, there's a lot in this book. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very significant kind of consolidation of thought and work over the course of, I feel like over the course of the time I've known you, but I'm sure that that extends into a kind of lifetime of thinking. I know that it's always been very important for you to publish a book like, and for it to be the book. And I very much feel that, that this book achieves that. But I wanted to start by, if you could talk a little bit about the most significant artworks in this process, because if, for people that may not be familiar, over the course of, say, the last decade, you've been producing things that I've often referred to as sort of prototypes to explain ideas that were not necessarily legible, and also for you to work through that process. And, and given that we're, you know, we're speaking in the context of the Serpentine and we exhibit work and we've, we've worked together, I'd be curious to hear about how those objects or those pieces of software fed into a kind of writing process and how that works for you. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things there, which is kind of um, why, why, why book and why now, that usual question you can ask. Um, and to say that it's sort of, it, it feels like a very particular book also and say odd in that it's not the one that I ever thought I've, I would write having wanted to write forever. Um, uh, I always thought I'd write a book about the internet and it would have kind of rainbows on the cover and I'm really glad that this one does. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, it's also somewhat bleak and, and not the kind of um, uh, necessarily the quite as, as, as uh, celebratory of that culture as, as I would have maybe thought it would be, which is partly a function of, of its time. Um, I started writing it. I was given the opportunity to write about it. Um, kind of just at the time of the US election, coming into the Brexit vote, and, uh, and uh, all the other things in the world, um, which are always happening. Um, and so that colored it to some extent. But as you say, it's also a product of working through a series of questions over the last yeah, decade or so, which are about how we represent things that are kind of too large for us to see. Um, my work's often described as making visible the invisible. Uh, by which I do things like uh, draw lines on the ground to represent uh, drones, which are a thing that not a lot of people see. And that not a lot is always key, right? Because these things are never really invisible. Um, right? they're, they're, they're invisible to some people and radically visible to other people. Um, and so that, that uh, trying to negotiate that distance between the things, trying to understand what it is that we can see, what it is that we can't see, um, who, who can see it and why, why some of us can't kind of forms, forms the basis of this. Um, because for me, this I, I've always been trying to use these technological processes to make technology more visible to people. Uh, and increasingly, I found that those works weren't fully doing the thing that I wanted them to do. Um, look, well, primarily, they weren't achieving any kind of change. And I think we'll talk about this kind of paradox as we get into it. But there seemed to be a paradox between this kind of desire to m make radically visible these things, uh, and then to say, but then, like, but now, like, what, what have you achieved by just kind of creating another image of this thing? Um, and so the, the darkness or the cloudiness that repeats in the book is very much a reaction to that, that actually maybe this kind of visibility is, is not enough, and possibly even it's a trap. Um, <clears throat> kind of curious, do you see in the production of a book 
the possibility for a kind of more significant change? That the book, the way that information travels through a book, and you know, obviously the kind of app, the speaking apparatus of producing a book. Um, do you, because you gave like a TED talk a couple of weeks ago, the kind of potential of that platform is that is that to do you see a hierarchy in your mind of like the book having potential to be a kind of more active form in this moment? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, the TED. This book is the opposite of a TED talk, I hope, uh, in, like, in kind of many ways. Um, I don't know, to, to say that the, the book is sort of more special is like to set it in opposition against other ways of speaking and, and writing and talking and presenting and disseminating work. I've always put most of my work online. Uh, I value that as a way of disseminating. It's hard to get people to read 100,000 words on a web page. Uh, and also, you can do things with thinking in a book that are not possible, certainly not in a 12-minute talk, not really in a blog post. Um, I think all of these ways of thinking are valid. Um, but yeah, there's a, a, a book length thing. You can set certain things in, in conversation with each other that aren't you know, possible. Um, but then I hope this will kind of flower back out into, into you know, the network again. And I want to stay kind of on the surface until we start, before we get into the kind of content. So from new aesthetic, it's a new dark age. <laughs> it suggests a kind of um, a journey. And I remember having conversations with you when the kind of new aesthetic blew up and a lot of people liked the new aesthetic term. The contemporary art world didn't like the new aesthetic term, but more kind of in kind of broader context, it kind of resonated with something that described uh, a kind of mimetic quality. New dark age is, is something else. And I, and I wonder in terms of what new dark age is being described because the term often is used to kind of describe the middle ages and it's particularly used to describe the kind of oppressive nature of religion and particularly the christian church and that leading to a kind of uh, intellectual regression as a result of superstitions um whilst that may actually not be That's true two questions already yes yeah, a lot right. of questions <laughs> i guess my basic question is why the new dark age? Sure. Uh, well, I think, I think the new aesthetic is actually almost a good place to start, though. It was, I was a bit weird out to talk about it. Um, but the thing to say about the new aesthetic is it, it also it came from a very specific place. So it's, people who don't know that, it, was, it is uh, an ongoing blog and research project and a kind of surfacing and gathering together of lots of imagery that I felt represented or conveyed something that hadn't been well represented or conveyed before, which was the kind of, which was the present, actually. Uh, one of the, the real things that started me off down that project was um, looking around me at the world and not seeing what I s knew was happening in the world. Uh, the, in particular, um, styles and trends at this point. We're talking seven, eight years ago now, but they're still fairly dominant. Um, the kind of really stupid things, like the, the fetishization of kind of retro and all the kind of authenticity that comes along with that. The fact that we're carrying around basically supercomputers in our pockets, but everyone's going around dressed as blacksmiths. Uh, and you have like, you know, blackboards in cafes and, and this kind of like, what felt like a kind of total aesthetic rejection of the future um, that I felt was sort of tied to a kind of fear and misunderstanding of the present. And so in the new aesthetic, I started to like collect together things that to me felt like they had the sheen or the grain of the present. And though I didn't really know what I was doing then at the time, that aesthetics did mean that. It kind of meant the surface of the thing, like this is what it looks like. Um, the thing is, as soon as you've done that, as soon as you've kind of, you know, made, like here's some things we can gather around to talk about 
the deeper effects, then we can start talking about the deeper effects, right? So, you know, in, in the last few years, I've moved into, or uh, talked more about the things that kind of underlie that, things like a kind of global surveillance and uh, the drone war and like some of the pretty dark aspects of this, but for me, were kind of impossible to discuss until we got a kind of shared sense of the surface of the thing that was under discussion. Um, so actually, it's quite a natural progression to kind of end, or to, to not to end, but to move through towards this thing that I, I call the new dark age um, in the book, which is really important to emphasize is actually, again, not really anything like the, what we think of as the medieval dark age, in, which also was not a dark age. Uh, like lots of stuff was happening there. Uh, we just lacked the, the records of it. Uh, we, don't have a lot of, we didn't used to have a lot of insight into the area, so we naively assumed people weren't like, doing a lot of really extraordinary things then. Um, uh, a new dark age is, is crucially not a thing in which nothing happens. Um, it's not a thing in which, uh, a time in which things are not possible. Um, you quoted from Lovecraft on that. I also quote from, um, in particular, um, uh, Virginia Woolf, who wrote in her diary in the, in the early 1920s that she felt we were entering a dark age. And she thought that might be a good thing, because the darkness was a good place to think. Um, that, that actually doesn't need to be a, a, a frightening place. It can be a time, a, a place of kind of extraordinary possibility. And, and the darkness, um, yeah, the, the darkness is, I'm, I'm trying to set up in kind of, um, yeah, as a kind of time and space in which, to, in which to think things that we haven't been very good at thinking about before. You answered both questions in one. Good. Um, so, I mean, I feel a great deal of empathy with you in terms of uh, having known you to always be an optimist. And it evidently is still, you still are an optimist. It's still there in like, the way that you're speaking and the subjects that you're addressing. But, and I've heard you describe yourself as a kind of recovering techno-utopian and I, and I would very much like align with that kind of perspective because this book, you know, for, for other people who, and I'm sure there's many people in this room that feel this way of like growing up with Believe, you know, reading an independence, a declaration for independence in, in cyberspace and, you know, being a part of various kind of activist movements, horizontally, you know, all of this kind of discourse, there was a time when there was a true belief that this was, you know, this was, it was possible, you know? And in many ways, like, if you relate to that kind of history, reading this book is like a dark night of the soul. And so I wondered, like specifically for people that have not necessarily gone through that journey and are suddenly like in this moment kind of the you know the kind of info wars that are happening through twitter and except fake news blah 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 um i wondered like what were those like key personal turning points for you where you began to turn against the kind of message of technology that you've been giving previously yeah i mean I wouldn't even frame it as a kind of turning against because I, I try to really maintain the fact that the technology itself is very full of possibilities. Uh, we've just lost um, control over it or, or never had it. And also who the we is in that because not everyone has lost control of it and it's definitely being used in certain ways very effectively. Um, but um, yeah, the thing about Vega recovering uh, kind of techno-utopian, like, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those kids who grew up on the internet. I had a computer in my bedroom before, you know, when no one, well, certainly when my parents had no idea what that was connected to. Uh, and that, that it was a huge uh, kind of zone of possibility. 
And there's a huge danger there of then becoming a kind of old man of the internet and raving about how good it was in, in my younger days, which I don't believe either at all. Uh, there's the stuff that the network makes possible now, uh, which is utterly incredible. Um, but um, the turning points, I guess, are seeing, starting to see this thing as being uh, a contested space. As a, as a struggle, like, you know, and fighting that narrative from both angles. So the fact that, like, slowly the internet became, you know, intensely commercialized, became intensely kind of financialized, uh, became for most people a place of kind of shopping and, and social ordering, uh, rather than a kind of space of experiment, experimentation and possibility, and, and slowly realizing how much of that was a kind of deliberate shutting down of, um, of this kind of, uh, it, it's potentially emancipatory possibilities. And so that if one cared deeply about, um, so I, I keep using this term, the network, which I prefer to the internet, because when I talk about the, in, uh, the network, I mean like the internet and us as one kind of big system. Again, because we always used to talk about the internet as this kind of like other place that you dialed into, uh, jacking into the matrix, Gibson style kind of thing. And it just like, that wasn't, it was never that far away. Uh, and it, it was never that other. And it's kind of totally merged with everyday life in kind of all kinds of weird and interesting ways now. So like, I, like to, I like to kind of bring them together in this figure of the network. And so if, if one cares about the network and the emancipatory um, uh, possibilities of it, uh, then you kind of have to, you have to go quite dark, I think, to kind of frame it as, as a struggle, as something that actually is uh, constantly being kind of renewed and, and redesigned and played out again, that we need to kind of renew our commitment to it to some extent. And also, there's a weird kind of vein of, I think we'll get to this again a bit later, but of kind of faith and trust in this thing as well. I kind of play this game of going back and forth, kind of anthropomorphizing the network. But right at the beginning, I talk about this weird moment I had where I was sitting on my balcony watching, of all terrible things, The West Wing. Um, and, uh, and I was watching it, and um, the, the computer um, it crashed. And um, uh, the line that looped over from Jed Bartlett, of all people, while it, while it was, uh, uh, while, when it crashed, was like, um, uh, you know, how, how, uh, we have the technology to get in touch with you in emergency. We have the technology to get in touch with you in an emergency, right? And it was like my computer was like trying to get me to like say that like um, uh, th this technology we've built is not this complete sense of darkness. It also actually um, can teach us something about the way that the world is um, because it's because the network is yeah something extraordinarily emergent in our culture that I still have this deep belief in, but I do think it's been kind of captured and tainted. And, and changed by some other interests. Um, and, and so it's up to us to kind of, to reread it, to re-engage it, and see what maybe it's actually trying to tell us more clearly about the state of the world. And maybe to speak to kind of a specific example of that that was kind of like quite, I remember it being, I don't know if I said it to you at the time, but it was like quite a profound kind of turning point when, you know, watched you produce all of this work over time that was uh, making visible the infrastructure of the cloud and you know the you know the cloud is actually a warehouse on the side of the M25. And there was like that moment when suddenly it was like, oh no, the cloud should be embraced as this symbol of unknowability. And I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit, because that unknowability is like obviously an important thread. Yeah. And how that kind of happened. So yeah, this, this thing you're talking about with the cloud. So I, I spent, yeah, years playing with this big figure of the cloud. 
Um, and I've been fascinated watching this thing turn from like a little symbol in electrical engineers' diagrams that was just like this kind of little thought bubble shape that slowly expanded to take the entire planet, right? Where now basically everything we do happens in this cloud. Um, like all your banking takes place in the cloud, all your social relationships are taking place in the cloud. We increasingly do things like vote in the cloud, all of these kind of huge civic things, which we used to have a quite strong kind of concrete sense of, sort of slowly have disappeared into this big, numinous, fuzzy thing. And so myself and a lot of artists, I guess, spent a lot of last few years um, trying to bring it down to earth, right? Kind of being able to point at it, much like the exercise of the new aesthetic, like saying, no, this is what it looks like. Because when you, when you concretize it, when you bring it down to earth, when you say that it's architecture and infrastructure, you can make, you, you can read interesting new things in it. So um, in the book, for example, I talk about um, the fiber optic cables that carry um, you know, the internet around the world. And we have this lovely idea of the internet as this kind of incredibly contemporary uh, emancipatory thing. But if you look at a map of the cables, they're the old steamer routes of empire, right? Uh, the, the, fast, the, the internet cables from, from West Africa come straight back to London still, right? The, the internet connections in, in South America are still tightly tied to Spain. And there's a sense of which this kind of, um, that colonialism which we sort of, occasionally pretend we've kind of pushed back, actually just kind of moved up into the level of infrastructure. And again, if, when you physicalize the cloud, these kind of cloudy terms, you can speak about those things a lot more directly and possibly learn from them and, and point that stuff out. Um, but in the book, what I also try and do is like kind of turn that metaphor over again and say, once we know that, can we make it a little cloudy again? Because the central paradox of the book is that um, uh, we seem to have kind of engineered our way to the end game of enlightenment, which is the, the idea that by producing, by storing, by transmitting and distributing ever more data about the world, by turning the world into just something that could be read as data and computed, um, the enlightenment idea is that we will come to sort of some kind of utopian um, perfect vision that will make us all uh, kind of better. Uh, and we, we've, we've really been working at that. You know, we've built this planetary scale infrastructure for transmitting all information everywhere to some people, not, certainly not everyone, um, as much as possible. And the result is not some kind of like coming together, but in fact seems to be a, a world completely riven by ever greater kind of divisions and fundamentalisms. So it's like we've kind of, this is what I mean by like listening to the network when it's trying to tell us something. Um, because it seems, it, it, it seems impossible to hold on to that, that belief in, in kind of data and quantification and, and, and kind of uh, information for its own sake when actually every time we test it against the world itself, it fails. And that's where I start to kind of push towards this, this um, quality of unknowing, which is really a question of asking, like, what can we know, what can we think, and what can we do without purely relying on being kind of given uh, an inherently flawed database model of everything. Maybe this is too big a question, but it's like I'm, I'm curious, like how far are you prepared to take that argument in terms of because it, it it moves from being about technological systems, systems of governance, the way in which the world's structured, into and you cite the Enlightenment, it moves into a challenge to empiricism and rationality and the age of reason and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And we're obviously going. It, well, I, I feel like it's obvious to some people that we're going through this moment in which. Uh, you know, there's a there's a reenchantment of the world, and there are there are subjects that people are beginning to talk about that haven't been talked about for a long time. And I, and I wonder whether it's like the book is saying we need to stop and look here, or whether you, 
you know, how far are you prepared to push it? Um, I'm willing to push it quite far uh, and, and uh, see where it goes because, like, I, I, I genuinely oppose to these, these, this... Every time I see the end result of these kind of data-based um, empirical processes being pushed that far, the result is either violence when it comes to things like surveillance and uh, various types of modeling, uh, you know, the, the use of um, software for all kinds of um, court-based decisions or these kind of examples, um, uh, or, it's, uh, or it's, it's, it's actively failure. So speaking to like scientific empiricism directly, one of the kind of quite extended case studies I talk about in the book is, um, is the development of new medicines. And so in the last 20 years or so, um, uh, medical research has intensely computerized and has turned into something that's entirely data-driven, uh, where they basically built vast, vast libraries of data about chemicals. Uh, and, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, our kind of mental image of a laboratory of kind of people in white coats tinkering with, with, with jars and stuff has basically been entirely replaced by, in fact, the cloud, right, by huge stacks of computers. Um, and this is like one of the best funded kind of research areas on the planet, this huge industry with cutting edge science and all this stuff. And yet it's failing. Um, in fact, the, the pharmacological industry's results are declining. Uh, they're discovering fewer and fewer drugs. And there's very various possibilities of this, but it's been discovered that one of the ways to counter that, um, that decline in, which, it, which, is, which is literally like a, a failure to find things within a space in its sim simplest thing. Like we know there are, there are combinations of drugs out there and the machines alone have, have not been able to find them. But yet when you put humans back into that system again, um, something, um, something different happens, that there's uh, a way of thinking, it seems, to the human um, which is distinct from raw machine-driven empiricism. And that has been kind of increasingly occluded from our way of thinking by this insistence upon um, what I call in the book computational thinking. The, like, our kind of, the thing that's get baked into our mind that the world is what is computable and that we kind of not, we're incapable of thinking of things that don't, that don't fit into that model. Um, so the, the answer is not, you know, if you say how far will I push that, the answer is not necessarily meditating in a cave, though I would occasionally recommend that. Um, it's just, um, it's actually just seeking to, to resist seeking like the dominance of one particular approach that we really have at this point in history, I feel like stress tested to its limits and we are starting to see the cracks in. Yeah. And maybe to give an example of that, I, d I just wanted to like highlight two of the bits that had the most impact on me. One was, and that I guess they're both in the kind of the climate section. One was, uh, you're just, I was sat on a plane, um, and there's a section that talks about the increase in turbulence as a result of more carbon in the atmosphere, and then lists out all of the injuries that have happened on planes. And ever since that moment, I've been tight, like wearing a tight seatbelt on a plane um, at all times. But I, I, I guess, you know, that's like a practical thing, you know, keep your seatbelt on on the plane, uh, even if you're sleeping or whatever. Um, it will, I mean, it will save lives, but I guess there's more specific where in the book, there's this constant like oscillation of like feedback loops. And I think that's the thing that maybe differentiates it from other examples of texts that try and unpick kind of 
technological systems or, or, or take aim at specific things that are emerging because it's through, as you read through the book, these feedback, you just get trapped in them and it's one after another. And here's one for you. So I'll read, I'll, I'll read this one. Carbon dioxide clouds the mind. It directly degrades our ability to think clearly and we are wall walling it into our places of education and pumping it into the atmosphere. The crisis of global warming is a crisis of the mind, a crisis of thought, a crisis in our ability to think another way. Soon, we shall not be able to think at all. <laughs> um, which is like, when you're reading this next to the graph of like the current projected, it's like, oh, it's so much worse than I thought, you know? Um, this, is, this, is, this is indeed the case. Um, this is indeed the case. Uh, and the, the point I'm... So again, one of the things of, of setting out in this book is to try and... Yeah, ask how we think about these things when all of these things are true. Um, the, um, uh, what was I gonna say? Um, this, the, 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 the comparison in another chapter that I make to, um, to climate, uh, between the climate and actually between, and to global surveillance. I, have a, I talk a lot about surveillance. And um, there's this bit where um, I talk about um, like whistleblowing and, and how much we know about surveillance and therefore how, and how much we're capable of acting on it and particularly reflecting on the fact that kind of five years after Edward Snowden's revelations but 10 years after a whole bunch of other revelations that should have told us the same thing and, and many, many other stories, uh, we've still yet to actually kind of grapple with this. And that, um, uh, the, um, and the, one, of the, one of the reasons for that is, um, oh, there's a quote from Ronnie Horn, the, the artist in the book, um, who says that, um, that weather is the central paradox of our age. Um, weather that's nice in the immediate is like bad at the systemic level, right? Um, we, like, climate change has poisoned our ability to have nice conversations about the weather because it's always kind of looming there, just as global surveillance has like, made us, like, it's kind of coated our phones with this kind of like sticky, nasty stuff. And the result of that was we don't think it. Right? We, we actually actively reject thinking about it. Uh, it becomes hard to think because it is that kind of deeply unpleasant. And I, I guess, though, I, this is not something I said, but maybe the, 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 new dark, the darkness that is, is, a kind of, is a response to that. Like, ultimately, despite all the examples I give in this, like, nothing is gained by knowing all of these facts about how many stations the NSA has or the exact PPM of the CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, uh, just as, in fact, you know, um, when the story I start the very book with, like when Ruskin started writing his notebooks about how the weather had changed at the end of the 19th century, um, and he didn't, he didn't know why it had changed. Um, like, he's often regarded, he, he says that, like, the rain's got worse, his garden is spoiling, the clouds are darker in the sky, and he says this based on, like, studying a thousand years of Western painting. Um, but he, he, picks up, he, he picks up on various things, but he doesn't, um, and environmentalists have seized on the fact that this was the age of industrialization and chimneys were going up everywhere and he mentions them, but actually he doesn't really care about any of that stuff. What he says is that something is, is wrong in the times themselves, right? This, this is a kind of, some kind of animistic response to the unrest in the world itself. And, and that's what it feels to me in like um, unpacking these various kind of, you know, horrible scenarios is that they're not really the point. <laughs> the point is to say that, like, um, 
uh, we, uh, we have to be aware of something, something else that's arise, something else that's off kilter in our, in our very way of thinking about the world. Um, and and it's, it's in that sense that I vote, invoke this idea of, of unknowing, of a kind of willful rejection of that form of kind of Western empirical knowing, um, because it's, it's, not, it's not helping us address these issues at all. So and I'm going to take a slightly different direction now, because I feel like we'd be doing this, the book something of a disservice if we didn't talk about AI. And I'm sure lots of people wanted to hear about AI this evening, because I feel like this is, this is, a, this is a hot topic. Um, but you know, jokes aside, you have done an excellent job throughout the book and in ongoing work to elucidate uh, how these systems work. Uh, the impact that they have and, and the impact that we can't know as a result of you know, black box neural networks and things like this. And throughout the book, you speak about things like Deep Blue, AlphaGo, YouTube algorithms that prey on children. We're not going to talk about that. Uh, Deep Dream. <laughs> uh, and I wondered, you know, in speaking about AI, I, just, I guess I just want to bracket it. Of, of what do you think is at stake? Because often a lot of your book a lot of your book and a lot of the, the work that you're, you're looking at at the moment kind of uses AI as this emblem or this symbol through which to talk about all of these subjects. But AI is also a kind of specific discourse. And I, and I just wondered, given that your kind of in-depth knowledge of this subject, what you think is at stake in the trajectory that's currently being laid out for the development of artificial intelligence? Um, I mean, I could give like several different answers to that. Um, uh, the, the one that I kind of come back to, well, you've mentioned Deep Dream, and I just want to like to set the scene, actually, I just would say something about Deep Dream before I get to that. Does everyone familiar with Deep Dream, uh, the kind of like weird psychedelic imagery that Google came out with like 18 months ago, which they produced by like feeding their, um, these neural networks they developed for image classification, feeding them basically blank images or, or other images and seeing, like tried to see what the machines were looking for in these images. And the thing that came out of that was um, like these crazily hallucinogenic kind of images of like kind of things, dogs with hundreds of heads or in, uh, like particularly, you know, just loads of eyes, um, which is like, deeply emblematic of like Google's and, and, and thus these technologies perception of the world as something to be kind of seen and imaged and, um, uh, and kind of, yeah, um, gathered in in this way. Uh, and the thing about, and everyone, everyone was like, oh wow, like the computers are tripping balls. Like it was just this kind of very odd thing. And, and, and the thing is that like, um, that was literally a nightmare. Right. It was, the guy who, the guy, I, I forget his surname, who's called Sergei, he's a Google engineer, um, like, came up with Deep Dream in a dream. He dreamt it, he, but the dream was a nightmare. He then woke up and programmed it, uh, came up with these images, showed them to the rest of the Google team, um, who were sort of like, whoa, dude, like, <laughs> no, like, that is not cool. Uh, and and, and uh, like, they then tried to get Google PR to release them, and Google PR were like, no, you bury this in a box. And then they leaked online, right? And I, I, I have no idea how that happened, but then Google had to kind of own them and like, put them out in the world. And then they, everyone was kind of like, ooh, that's crazy and trippy. Um, but this is a thing that literally kind of emerged from a nightmare. And so like, I, I, I want to put that 
And neural networks are not artificial intelligence, um, though there's some weird crossovers. Um, they are somehow emblematic of this desire to bring computers into the realm of what we have considered to be human intelligence um, and human ways of thinking about the world. And, and I emphasize the nightmare thing to say they're not always coming from what we would consider to be a rational place. Uh, not that I you know, think that much comes from a, a place of rationality, but a lot of this imagining really doesn't. Um, and it comes from very odd and strange places, and it's okay to talk about it in that way, essentially, I think. Um, uh, so that's the deep dream thing. Um, where was I supposed to be going Trajectory. The trajectory of that, okay. So um, I'd, I'd say like specifically, you know, the narrative that's being told around AI right now, whether it's like taking jobs, et cetera. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, no, what I, was, what I was gonna say about, about the trajectory and the one that I kind of follow and find most interesting in the book, like we can talk about military applications and we talk about all this kind of stuff, but the one I, I find most interesting is, is kind of continually asking like what it is we want it for, like why we're making it, um, like at, at a quite like broad kind of species level thing because I actually like studied AI um, kind of 15 years ago when the last idea of what artificial intelligence would be was kind of falling out of favor and at that time it was largely um, um, uh, around cognitive science, around linguistics, around evolutionary psychology which has thankfully mostly gone away uh, but it was particularly this idea that we could build a computer that looked like the brain uh, that kind of was, was basically like a brain and therefore would somehow magically be more humanly intelligent. And that approach really failed. Um, and it's taken a while to come back to the current wave of AI that we hear about all the time. And that happened by basically ditching everything that was human about this idea and going with something that was far more computationally based and kind of far more other. And so we're evolving. And, and so you mostly hear about machine learning rather than artificial intelligence these days. And there's a... The like, practical engineering reason for that is that machine learning isn't really intelligent. But the other thing is it's also machinic. And to even use the term artificial intelligence is to like, imply that it's like, somehow a fake version of us when it's, when it's a real version of something completely different, which is, which is weirdly destabilizing. Um, and so can I, can I talk about the Deep Blue and AlphaGo thing? You may. Thank you. Um, the, 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 the bit that this really particularly hit home was um, was in the AlphaGo match last year uh, when um, this computer beat Lisa Dole, the, the world's, one of the world's best Go players. And it was billed as a kind of rerun of the Deep Blue Kasparov match from 97, which was this you know, huge built-up man versus the machine thing um, where the world's greatest possibly ever chess player was pitted against this computer that had been designed specifically to beat him. Um, and it did... Um, but it did it basically in a way that we understand, in a way that we fundamentally comprehend what Deep Blue did to beat Kasparov. And what it did was it basically kind of outgunned him in terms of the fact that it was capable of holding more board positions in its head. It's pretty simple. It just had more memory storage capacity and kind of um, live memory than a human does. So it could think more moves ahead and it could see more outcomes and it just brute forced the problem. Go doesn't work like that. Go's too complex even for the supercomputers we have now. So we had to build something that properly learned, that could think about its moves. And that's what AlphaGo is. It's a, it's a neural network, a machine learning system. Um, and, and it was pitched against, against Lisa Dole. Um, 
And in the third game, the first two games are, are relatively easily matched. And then in the third game, this, about halfway through the game, AlphaGo plays this move, which is unlike any move that's been seen before in, in, um, in Go, you know, a game which is, has this extraordinary history and strategies and all these kind of things. It plays this wild, crazy move. And, and Lisa Dole's, like, um, like, actually leaves the room for like half an hour to think about it. The commentators are speechless. You can watch the kind of live thing. The commentators don't know what to say for ages. And then they start discussing, like, oh, well, it's broken. Like, like it's a ridiculous move. And it takes like another little while of gameplay to see this is one of the greatest Go moves that's ever been played. Like, no one has ever seen a move like this. It completely wipes Lisa Dole off the board. And it dominates the next few games. And the thing is, we will never know why it made that move. It's processes of thinking about the game and understanding the concept of Go itself are enmeshed in a neural network structure that is ultimately beyond our, any human brain's ability to map. We will never know what it was thinking, uh, which is, on one level, just like sad. Right? The, uh, on another level, it's beautiful. Like The machines are like, like opening up this extraordinary territory that was never accessible to us before. But they're going to do a lot of it without us. Um, and again, like in many ways, fine, okay. But that's what's at stake. Mm -hmm. Like um, the, the thing I would tip over into slightly is also to say um, we're really, really, really bad at considering the urgencies and agencies of non-human things. Uh, that's a big part of why we're in the horrific mess we're in now. It's bad enough how we treat each other, but like how we treat the planet, how we treat other species, is, is a big part of like the kind of inherent violence that, that humanity seems all too willing to demonstrate. Um, and so this thing that I keep circling around, like what is technology here to teach us? Like maybe it's one of the things we're gonna have to do is raise these little robot friends uh, or killer death robots, or whichever one we're like gonna, we're, we're deciding we want to build, and and gonna have to learn to live with it, and learn, you know, how to work with and cooperate and think alongside and acknowledge the presence of other intelligences, other agencies, um, and and you know, one hope might be that that actually makes us better. I'm gonna skip my question on the AI arms race. Okay. <laughs> Um, I think, I mean, there's something that I really want to get to, so I'm, I'm conscious of time. So how am I going to quickly speed through AI? I think maybe I'll just jump towards the end because there's, there's something about myth in your book that's not been, I don't think, been dealt with enough. It hasn't necessarily been kind of brought to the surface in other conversations. But before we get there, I guess there's, there's an interesting set of dialogues that were developed around the Serpentine Marathon, and particularly uh, Kenrick McDowell talking about uh, the idea, what we can see happening in Silicon Valley with the development of AI, that predominantly it's been based on a kind of Judeo-Christian belief model, and this is why we end up with the narratives. But we can't see that because Silicon Valley, for the most part, presents itself as atheist or agnostic. And, you know, to speed through into, in terms of kind of myth and thinking that through, but you can maybe respond to some of these specific points. At the same moment as we have that kind of illumination and the return of belief and return of religion, and we begin to reframe our relationship to artificial intelligence in like, well, maybe we shouldn't actually treat it like 
uh, an evil kind of god because that might replicate existing narratives of control. At the same time, we're seeing this really interesting thing emerge with respect to kind of divinatory practices. So like AI presents itself as a, a, a tool that can predict the future quite often, but it too often actually just mirrors the past back and pretends it's the future. And in this kind of return of divinatory practices, you're seeing like a huge rise of people paying attention to astrology um, and kind of classic forms, you know, tarot, things like this. And I just wondered, I mean, you kind of swerve around the edges of this subject and I know that it's something of interest, but I, I just wondered that kind of polarity of the kind of like super technical rational systems versus the return of belief. And, you know, there's a lot there. Yeah. And I'm compacting five, four questions into okay. one. But I, I guess if, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it's like interesting magical times right now. And that's good. I, I say that as someone who basically think on some level that I invoked the whole new aesthetic crisis by repeatedly putting a slide of Alistair Crowley up every time that I talked about it uh, as a way of talking about what happens when you name things. Um, and that there's a, um, there's a history to doing that that's valid and interesting. Um, the kind of... Um, the, I don't know, I don't, do we have a term for it yet? The kind of like magical or mystical awakening or whatever it is, this kind of constellation of, of um, thought that seems to be going on at the moment and producing lots of really interesting artistic and theoretical work. I see possibly, this is my reading of it at the moment, uh, is that it's actually an attempt to like reassert agency over those things that we don't understand, right? Because, because ultimately so much of... Um, human history and of, of particularly of religious and ritual history and mystic history and all this kind of stuff is, is basically like how you propitiate systems that you don't understand. You know, you don't understand how the weather works, but you know, we, we, we've learned to do this, this particular form of ritual or something and maybe that's gonna work. And um, I think there's a direct line from that to, to um, attempts to kind of reassert an agency in the present, which is not to say that those things are meaningless. I don't mean that by any stretch of the imagination. I think there's a huge amount of power and, and thought in them. Um, and, and as I say repeatedly in, in, in the book, this kind of um, uh, ability to, like literally how do we live amongst vast and dangerous systems that we don't understand? Because the whole idea was that we were taming everything, right? And we were making it all like safe and good and things we don't have to worry about. And, 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 and now we're inviting, you know, um, uh, uh, things into our homes and into our um, pockets that we don't understand and that may contain all kinds of strange dangers. Um, and if we don't understand that we need some way of balancing that. And so mystical practices have always been a way of asserting agency in a situation you don't understand. And I think that's a really productive way, way to, to think about it. Um, but the, the other thing that I talk about in the book is also like how you give voice to and acknowledge and live alongside like simply other ways of telling these stories and other ways of thinking about them. Um, one of the stories I talk about in the book, which I took from Susan Shipley's work, um, is um, her accounting and, and, and several other authors' accounting of um, certain First Nations people who have been talking for some time about the... Um, uh, they've been saying that the Earth is off its axis. And, and what happened, this really interesting thing that, that Susan Shipley documents in one of her works, is that a few years ago, a bunch of First Nations people were invited to uh, the COP16, the big climate conference, and were um, 
basically as these sort of like native witnesses to the problem, like, you know, bring these people and they will speak with the authentic voice, but please don't say that thing about the Earth being off its axis because it like weirds out scientists. And they said it was off its axis because they were like, the sun is setting in a different place. Like the, the, the land has changed to a radical degree that, that, that some, something is afoot on the planet and, and this, was how, uh, this was how they rendered it. And they continued to insist upon this. And it's possible to say that they are, um, you know, the, earth, the, the, the atmosphere is filling with dirt and, and particles that weren't there before. And it's doing that most at higher latitudes. And the same sunsets that you see go red over like smoggy cities because of like more crap in the atmosphere are affecting higher latitudes more, right? So of course, things look differently at the poles than they did before. But at the same time, like, I think it's really essential to resist just going like, oh, but they mean this when we say it in scientific terms. That like, to, to actually engage with this stuff thoughtfully and critically, it's really necessary to hold both those ways of talking about what's happening uh, kind of equally with equal value and with equal amounts of thought. Because, because it's quite clear from our inability to act uh, on climate change that our, like, our dominant ways of talking about it are, are radically insufficient. Um, so to, yeah, so the, the, the urging in the book is to kind of constantly seek out different ways of talking about what is happening. Um, with, you know, whatever tools you have to hand, frankly, um, you know, use whatever's in the pouch to, like, to, to, to talk and think about this thing. So <clears throat> I just want to give a few examples, and I'm, I'm conscious of time, so I'll, I'll collapse these questions. So in the, it, it's interesting in the complexity, in the conclusion to the complexity chapter, you invoke, invoke Hermes as the, as the kind of mythical archetypal figure that we should look for guidance in thinking through complexity. Um, at other stages in the book, you invoke kind of Thor and the Thor's hammer and the, the ability to imbue objects with metaphor. Um, and perhaps my favorite kind of myth-making, and, and this is specific to the question, but perhaps you could talk about the, the use of those other myths, is the, the example given of the priesthoods in ancient Egypt um, during the annual ceremony of Osiris. Uh, perhaps you can, you can explain this example, but the question is like how they executed control and how there are parallels to the, the kind of systems of control that are present in the world in this moment. I mean, yeah, Maybe this, is just the, this is just ancient power at work. Um, like from the moment we developed technology, it was used uh, by those in power against those without it in various forms. And if you don't know this example, it's the fact that um, uh, Egypt built a millennia long dynasty of extraordinary power and wealth uh, that was very violent to most of its subjects, uh, that c c um, placed all of its wealth and power at the very center in the most extraordinary, elaborate kind of mythic structure that, uh, one of the most extraordinary ones anyway, that, that, that the planet has probably ever known. This c just vast repositories of, of storytelling and myth and all of this thing. And at the heart of this was a scientific instrument that they didn't tell anyone about. The, the Egyptian priesthood that created the, uh, the pharaohs and everything else had a series of secret wells along the Nile uh, in which over centuries they marked how high the Nile rose so that every year they were capable of predicting 
based on the rising tide, whether that year would be a drought or a, a flood, a, a catastrophic flood, or like a good year in between. And that they could use that as a way of um, controlling the populace. They could, they could set taxes and do all this kind of stuff, but they could also perform these incredible rituals of um, uh, kind of summoning and, and, and all of these kind of, yeah, practices of power around this thing because they'd got a technology that they were actively hiding that only they really even understood could exist. Um, like I, it, it, that actually kind of precedes all of this talking about myth, really. Um, but it's, it's really about this, uh, this point of realizing that technology is, you know, not, it, it's right back to what I said at the start about realizing the, the kind of struggle that's inherent in, think, in our thinking about technology. Uh, uh, and also pointing out that this is really not new in any way, right? This has always been the way these things are used. Um, but that to, to, to say that, like, uh, technologies are, are, are like, yeah, always, always, always held and kept secret to some extent, and, and will always be used against those um, uh, uh, with lesser power and lesser understanding, which is part of a kind of wider thread in the book of talking about the, the kind of absolute necessity of democratizing, for want of a better term, technology, uh, but also crucially democratizing like our understanding of technology. Um, one of the problems I kind of address in the book is like, how do we all talk about technology? Um, like in a way that all of us can get involved in this conversation. Um, because like we've always known priesthoods are, um, well we haven't, but you know, we've, <laughs> it's always been proved in the long run that priesthoods were a bad idea. Um, and, uh, and, and we're, we're like really like heavily invested in, in, in a kind of technological priesthood right now. So um, yeah, the necessity of, of, um, of, of uh, working out pretty rapidly how we, how we pull back from that is the story of the nylometer. Thank you, James. I think we're throw it open to questions at this point. So anybody would like to raise their hand? And Zurich, do you have a question? Yeah, many questions. Thanks so much for this conversation. I wanted to, uh, to ask, um, because Ben started <coughs> by saying, you know, it's unusual for you to write the book because you've done so many things in your practice. Uh, so I was obviously very curious if this book will lead to another book or if it's a one-off. Um, oh, I super hope so. I just, I really like writing. Uh, <laughs> like, um, so the, 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 the reason that's, I guess I'll try to is A, like this is, there's kind of 10 years of, of silly things that I've done on the internet in this book also, which sounds a bit, makes it sound like a memoir, but it sort of is. Um, so it's like, I'm, I'm a bit nervous of like, yeah, of building up that kind of knowledge. Um, I, I think that has to be, not least because, you know, in this book, I, I, I made a very, very firm decision not to, to solutionize, you know, essentially, not to tell anyone what they should be doing, um, not to propose though, any kind of magic solutions for this, magic, good word again, um, but simply to like state what I saw as kind of present conditions as clearly as possible, because I don't think they're being stated very clearly very often. And it's weird that I use that term clear when I'm like deliberately also um, clouding. Um, but I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do that gesture again of holding these things kind of equal and possible. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm not gonna stop writing. Um, I don't know if there'll be more books. But like, this is, this is the statement of a problem and, 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 and more thinking happens after that. 
only right to take a question from Erica, and then the second question is over here. Thanks for that. That's really interesting. Um, as, as you know, we've talked about it. I've read the book, and just also with you mentioning some examples here in terms of the First Nations people understanding of uh, climate change and the movement of the sun, but also the scientists grasp maybe in the medical labs, which goes beyond the computational and might be something almost intuitive. So I was thinking about this as being almost a call to, to pay more attention to embodied knowledge and the experience that is kind of bodily and held, which is, of course, something that like feminist theorists have been talking about for a long time. But at the same time, um, and obviously this is also one of the things that's missing from AI, isn't it? This idea of the kind of disembodied brain, what it's missing is maybe embodied knowledge. But at the same time, of course, all of this is being quite aggressively researched, isn't it, in Silicon Valley in terms of effective computing and quantifying the voice and feelings. And so I was wondering if you've got any thoughts on kind of how that embodied knowledge can be held without also then monetizing it and kind of controlling it and turning it into another thing um, to, yeah, to, yeah, to control a kind of wider population through. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have the answer of how it can be held, but I think it's really worth emphasizing, as you've said, that this, like, there's a lot missing from this because it's missing from my own knowledge of coming to this largely from a kind of technological background and from certain, um, you know, and, and my own personal background and understanding that like many of the questions in here have been like very, very well sketched and addressed by, by uh, feminist thinkers and queer thinkers and, and a number of other people in very important ways. I mean, one of the things I, I mentioned, it's like half a line, but I thought it was really important was to say, um, when, when I, you know, rant grandly about the new dark age, is that many people have always lived in darkness of various forms. Um, and by which, again, I don't mean lack of knowledge. I mean where they're not being spoken of or, um, or their, their, their contribution is not recognized in all these kind of ways. Um, you could read the whole book probably as me going, oh, the body. Like, maybe it's not all computers. Uh, and like how ridiculously belated that, that kind of realization is. Um, I, I don't know enough about the practices that you're talking about at all to, to say how they can be, um, how they can be um, like held away from the things that are eating everything else. Um, because you say they're already not being. Um, what, it, what, it, what they can do is amplify certain voices and other perspectives. It's my hope, even though I, I rag on the internet as much as possible, and, and like it's, it's this dark, grim place of fighting, often, uh, particularly at the moment, it's also a place in which you know, a, amazing flowerings of identity and, and, and self-presentation um, are occurring because it does convey a certain visibility on things that were hidden before. Uh, and that's that's an amazing thing for me to see. I I have no yeah the the the, the how we admit other voices and other storytelling. The the I, I want to because I just read it mentioned in another book which is um, uh, uh, Claire Evans's Broadband, um, which is is like the in the because in the in the first chapter of the book I talk about um, uh, a history of computers and how they were built and how they were uh, developed and. Um, uh, it's, it's a very, very partial history. Uh, and then you, Claire Evans's book, Broadband, which has just come out, she talks, uh, it's a history of, of the women who built the internet, essentially. Um, and it's just ridiculous uh, how few of these stories have been told up till now, and how central they are, um, and how this history, like the actual history for what that's worth, 
is impossible to tell without the contribution from those narratives as well. Like you just don't know what's happened right, until that other set of the history is told. And also, it's a radically different history um, in that it's one that's not focused on like necessarily who wrote one line of code or who built this computer. It's also who were the community builders of the early internet, like who was creating, I think community, a really key part of that is a history of various internet communities that like also the internet wouldn't have happened. It wasn't just, you know, nerds in Silicon Valley. It was the people who lived it and experienced and embodied it. Um, so I don't know what the answer is to it, but I'm, I'm pleased to see that there's many, many ways of kind of writing it out to make it visible. Um, so the question, if that microphone wasn't, wasn't doing it, is, is given some of the examples we've talked about, the AlphaGo and stuff like that, the stuff I talk about YouTube in the book, like basically is, is there a chance for some kind of like breakthrough of AI like Stephen Hawking warned, like Elon Musk, who, I, you know, whatever. Um, uh, but as, as people have warned. Um, uh, I mean, yeah. Um, but it sounds really flip, but I, I, I really love saying this. Like, we already have artificial intelligences living amongst ourselves, and they're called corporations. Uh, like, we already created very complex, um, algorithmically run intelligent systems that operate. And I, yeah, I mean, if we put the AI inside a huge battle bot with machine guns on it, like, that's the danger. Or if we put it, if it tries to turn everyone into paper clips, like that's a real possibility and a danger. And, but like corporations are already trying to turn people into paperclips. Um, um, by, by all of which I mean is like I don't, I, AI is a really interesting thought experiment, which is not to say that it's not gonna happen for real, but like for me, my interest in it is as a framework for thinking about, yeah, about the non-human, about complex systems, about things that are not within the control or even the full understanding of any one, certainly not one individual or even any one group or of any kind. Um, that like, um, I, I think we have much bigger things to worry about than the like soon emergence of a like malevolent AI. Like worry about it all we want, but like I'd rather think about it in terms of how, by thinking about AI, we can think about a lot of other like really big systemic issues that have been with us for some time uh, and are doing a, a, you know, much more damage in the present. Do we have, <clears throat> Do we have other questions? I've got another question over there. I've got more questions just in case. <laughs> no. Okay, I haven't quite formulated this question, but, um, so I heard an amazing thing today, which is that um, the ground under central London is now 10 degrees hotter than it was un uh, 100 years ago because of tube trains um, just running constantly, like, you know, 
365 days a year, the, the heat from those trains has actually made the whole, it's changed, you know, the geography of the underground of central London. And I have kind of mixed feelings about that because obviously the, tr the tube is a great thing because it stops people driving. But then, you know, how do you feel about, you know, the sort of dependence, like this creeping dependence on new technology? I mean, obviously the tube's not new as such, but it's, it's that kind of feeling that the more we use it as a crutch, the more we will depend on it. Um, do you want to take an answer? Um, like, I mean, this, this is the central, central <laughs> paradox. I mean, because, like, I, I, no, I, I genuinely want you to come in on this one because, like, I, I, like, ultimately that question for me, and maybe I'm wrong about this, like, presupposes, like, either it's kind of acceleration until we all boil to death or, um, or like, go back to the cave. Um, and, like, I don't, like, the answer is going to be, you know, somewhere between those, between those things. I, uh, uh, um, and we're not going to magically fix that thing. The thing that I focus on, as I've said, is how we see the ways in which the technologies we're dependent upon um, have been... Um, uh, the ways in which they've been developed, right? So whether they've been developed kind of originally as military systems and brought into civilian life, whether they've been de developed as kind of industrial corporate systems, what are the logics that have put this particular configuration of technologies in place? And how, given that we're not going to step back from making stuff, do we make stuff in ways that, like, is at least not the way we've been doing it thus far? because we can see the outcomes of the way in which those things have been produced so far and the logics that have underpinned them. And we're seeing the results of those things. And so, yeah, the, ma the main thing I, I guess I concentrate on in response to that question is how do we open up wider participation in conversation around and thinking about the things that we're making and doing, like freeing up more and more people's agency to be part of that process. That's I really want your opinion uh, on this one. I, I think the reason you want me to say something is just uh, because of my response to a lot of this has not necessarily been to try and work through the... I, I guess maybe it's like taking a, a, something of an embodied like approach of like uh, how does one examine a daily practice and how can you exit through... In some ways, like how can you exit out of technology through the body? Um, and I think... You know, there was a Ted Kaczynski thing in here that I didn't bring into the conversation, but it, Ted Kaczynski is an in, important, and that I don't support the Unabomber, um, but <laughs> Ted Kaczynski is like a, a really important figure in terms of like seeing the very, I mean, he must, like, how did he do it? He saw very early on the potential in cybernetic thought and the Rand Corporation, everything that this was going to lead to, and he took a very extreme approach and he went to you know the he went to the countryside and he made bombs and that's not something to advocate for but it's it's interesting that we're trapped in this kind of conundrum of like i in my in my own work i've attempted to go into the countryside with a bunch of techno utopians and and try and work through like a different practice and there's something that like pulls everyone back to this like something about the kind of attention economy and, and things like this but i you know, I don't know how I can speak directly to this question without like unpacking all of the kind of weird stuff that I'm going through 
personally respect <laughs> to this practice, but so, like I, I would personally like gesture very much towards looking at monasticism as like not necessarily sitting in a cave and meditating, but looking at the way in which a structured life, the bare life, combines work and life, and how that shift in form of living allows you to inform a set of decisions over time. The monasteries give rise to, you know, time, keeping, you know, all of the many different agricultural processes as a result of like living out a different structure of life. And I think that that's kind of what we need to do. And I think that within what we've been given, if we do return to the kind of cybernetic discourse of design patterns and things like that, there is the potential to take some of these bits apart and put them together to form something else. And I'm not sure why we're not doing it. I put it down to Saturn and Capricorn, and I think in 2021, <laughs> joke, maybe, uh, but there is this kind of moment coming yeah. and that we will like uh, reestablish our agency once we understand kind of the, where well, we've, I think this is a moment of just uh, a reckoning. Thank you. That's why when you say. Any other questions? <laughs> no. One of the things that um, uh, the imaginative leaps that developed, one of the things that I think is fascinating about the, is the conversation around the network uh, and the idea that um, it's this scale tool for introspection that, that, you know, that our species has created. You say, you say this phrase, and I think it's just a very surprising way of thinking that just opens up and um, yeah, creates a kind of new space uh, in, in, in our ways of an understanding of this. Um, yeah, so that, that, that like planetary scale tool for introspection is the, is the thing. Um, there's a, a, like one of the, the weird things about the internet is that no one set out to create it and no one knows what it's for. Uh, um, uh, and like people were building all of these bits of things, but we created this vast network, right? Which is, to, can, you know, encompasses everything that has expanded out to the scale of the planet, and we did it unconsciously, right? I, and 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 now we make more and more stuff with it that we also do partially by accident, by kind of poking and prodding it. And I call it, a, in the book, I call it an unconsciously generated tool for unconscious generation. And I refuse to believe it doesn't have some kind of purpose, right? Not in a teleological sense, not in the sense that, like, it's been sent from God to direct us, but, like, we can use it for stuff. Um, and the, the very least we could do is, is use it to think about ourselves. There's a question... theological and you know it's, we talk quite a lot about your title about the new dark age and you declare be an optimist at the same time and by now we know that uh, dark age probably they were not that dark what I want to concentrate is a bit the end of the future what's that your yeah. choice yeah, yeah. no no sure future. no I mean sorry that's your question theological yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah um, so what, um, where, where that part of the, the title comes from is um, actually one of the real triggers for the book, uh, and actually from the title as well, which I, I read an article uh, in the paper called the title New Dark Age, before I even came across the Lovecraft quote, and it was an article by someone who runs the American Weather Corporation, um, which is one of the largest US-based weather forecasters in the world, and one that kind of pioneered the use of data 
in, in uh, as in, sorry, pioneered the, like, um, the use of vast amounts of data, right? It, it like concentrated on increasing its weather stations and gathering more and more information to feed ever more powerful computer programs in order to be able to predict the weather. Um, and um, what's happening, and, and, and it's too late to go into, but like, there's a lot of meteorological stuff in the book, and I cite a lot of the development of computation in this, even the thinking about the future itself as this kind of process of divining the weather. Um, uh, but what's increasingly apparent is that despite all of our data and all of this information, um, our ability to predict the weather is, is starting to falter again. It's taken us about 100 years to get good weather forecasting out to about 7 to 10 days, which is pretty, um, like we can see 7 to 10 days into the future. That's amazing. Um, but unfortunately, climate change. Uh, and the increased instability of the planet means that our models aren't working as well anymore. Um, and we're getting more and more freak weather events and these kind of strange, strange occurrences. It sounds kind of mystical, but it just means that things are more complicated than we're capable of modeling. Uh, and so that, that horizon of predictability is starting to come back towards us again. We're going to be, our weather forecasting is going to get worse. And as a result, all of our long-term forecasting. And so much of our kind of complex, technologized society is, is entirely dependent upon our attempt to predict the future in various ways, whether that's moving goods around, whether that's sowing and reaping crops, any of these things. Um, you know, it's, it's the ability to predict the future is something that we've based um, uh, you know, contemporary society entirely upon. That's going to get worse. It's going to, it's going to degrade. It's going to restrict. And so the end of the future doesn't mean like there's not going to be a tomorrow. It means we're just not going to be able to think so much in terms of um, like what we're going to be doing in a week's time. I mean, it was literally. Like we, the, which in turn becomes, for me, an insistence upon thought and care in the present. Um, I relate it directly to, um, to Aldous Huxley uh, and his insistence at all times on means and not ends, right? On, on, uh, on the fact that um, any, any, any philosophy, which includes a philosophy of putting all the data into the computer, munging it, and doing what it says based on what it predicts will happen in the future, um, rejecting all of that out of hand, uh, out of hand because, because means determine the ends, right? That's, that's what Huxley always says, means determine ends. And so the means, the means are what we have in the present. Uh, the means are what we can do now for one another um, uh, and, how, and how we behave right now. And, and yeah, the future is, is, not, is not there for us to grasp in that way anymore. So um, we need to think more carefully about how we behave right now. Do we have any other questions? Oh, we have one here. I'm... <clears throat> I'm glad to hear you because you are trying the best. But I'm, uh, as a pedagogic education, I see uh, we, we have always tried the best for not ourselves, but for all the people, how we can in, in Everybody have their environment, their ability, and if everyone use their uh, job or 
profession and so on, with responsibility. The future would could be better, not on the end. Yeah, I mean, and I think we, we live in a time when that is, um, yeah, well, increasingly undeniable. It's, it's undeniability is the term that I, I keep coming back to. Um, like, as I said, the way in which the kind of complex technologies are showing us that this kind of data-driven stuff um, or as a way of understanding the world is, um, is, is fundamentally broken. It's also starting to prove some super interesting results around, like, uh, community, uh, uh, in, like, dem democracy of understanding. Um, uh, the the uh, thing I'm slightly obsessed with at the moment, I think probably this might be the last story, but sorry, I'm going to tell it quickly, um, uh, is um, uh, what, what others have called the, the, um, uh, the, the technology of ancient democracy. Uh, in, the, in the center of Athens, they've still got preserved one of these machines, uh, which, is that, um, uh, which is a machine for selecting who is going to be in charge of the city. Uh, most of ancient Athenian democracy was run by lot, which is a thing that's kind of gone from our democracy. Um, uh, but most of the offices of state were actually filled by a, a lottery of everyone who was eligible, which certainly wasn't everyone, but was a chunk of the population. Um, they weren't voted for. They were selected at random. Um, this has started to fade out of, out of our society. The only place it really exists in anymore are jury service. And underlying most, uh, a lot of scientific research in the form of kind of randomized stochastic processes and so on and so forth, that randomness has this amazing process. And um, it turns out in a, in a huge amount of uh, technological processes, uh, particularly in various forms of AI, um, uh, particularly in kind of genetic algorithms and these kind of rather emergent forms of problem solving, uh, that different forms of, of um, ability, different viewpoints, um, different understandings of the world are better at solving problems than, um, than any other method we have of figuring out who should be in charge or which particular approach to take. Um, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a thing, uh, a kind of a, a theorem in this, which is that diversity trumps ability, which is that if you basically take a random sampling of the population uh, for any kind of complex variegated task, you'll get a better result than... Um, uh, uh, if you try and select for any particular individual ability. And that should be really obvious, right? But, but we seem to be at this point where, you know, we need this kind of like mathematical modeling of the thing that I want to completely disavow. Um, but, but again, if nothing else, like this is what we're building these systems for, to kind of continually show us these things that should be super obvious, um, like um, a diversity of opinion and, and thought is possible and, and being uh, better in the present um, is, a, is a better long-term strategy than any other one.